All right. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. How are you guys doing today? What a wonderful day it is out there, huh? I'll try and make this brief so that you can get out there and enjoy the... <laughs> no. I'll make it as, as brief as, as I can, but I feel like the Lord gave me a, just a wonderful message. I'm really, really excited. This was one of the easiest messages for me to write. The reason is because I sat down at my desk and I had my study guides and my Bible and I had my computer up and was getting ready to write it. And the Lord just started just downloading things to me. And so like literally like within an hour, I had almost the entire thing down, which is really unusual for me. Um, and then I walked away from it like I always do and given the Lord time to speak to me and adjust and change and things like this and really didn't change anything about it. In fact, as the week went on, things happened uh, on TV and personal life and things like that that just really verified what he had given me and, and just confirmed that. So, so that's why I'm excited to share this. It's just, uh, I think it's going to be a very life-giving message. For those of you who are newer, let's see, first of all, before I even get into that, I want to say a shout out and a thank you to my lovely wife, Gabrielle, who taught last weekend giving me the chance to go uh, perform a wedding for Stephen and Elizabeth Markling. Some of you know them. Stephen's on our security team, and, and uh, they got married last weekend, so I was honored to be able to go and officiate that and to have my wife step in and, and do a wonderful job. Not so wonderful that they didn't let me back in the pulpit. So there's a fine line between that, but she, but she did a great job, and, and uh, so I'm excited about that. And thank you guys for for giving her a, a good audience last week. So, um, but on with the message here. We are in uh, a series titled, I guess, if you had to have a title, called the Sermon on the Mount. We are in Matthew 5 through 7, which is Jesus teaching one of the most, if not the most, well-known sermon, if you will, but, but single dispensation of wisdom on how we should live our lives with each other and with our God that has, that has ever been. And there's so much meat there. It's, it, the Sermon on the Mount is a common topic for churches to teach on. But I felt like the Lord just said, I want you to go through these verse by verse and just really dig into that because there's so much that we have heard and we think we understand or we've heard in a different context and we're not sure where it came from. Um, but I want to clarify, there are a lot of things that we assume we think we know based on what we've heard or what we've taught that sometimes we get it twisted around a little bit. And so as we go through the Sermon on the Mount series, that's my goal, is to make sure that you have a deep and a full understanding of what the Word of God is truly trying to say. Not necessarily what I have to say about it, although I'll give you some, some of that, but I really want you to understand what Jesus has to say about it, because I think that's more impactful and more important than anything I could ever say. So as we go into this week, this week is Matthew 5, 43 through 48, and it's essentially love your enemies, okay? I want to give you all, for those of you who like the Cliff's Notes version right up front, okay, I want to tell you it all boils down to this, and I'm going to circle back around to it at the end, but here's what I think Jesus wants you to know, that if you love God, with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength, you will be unable to hate his people. So I think that's the bottom line to this. I want to give you that right up front because if you're the kind of person that likes to just write that down and filter the rest of everything you hear through that, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, you will be unable to hate his people. 
So let me go back into the sermon that, and uh, the Sermon on the Mount, that is, and explain to you how I come to that conclusion. And I think that's what the Lord wants us to have. So let's start by just reading the base scripture for this section, Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You've got it up there. You have heard that it was said. Now, this is Jesus speaking. For those of you who don't know necessarily the context, Jesus is speaking here, and he's actually teaching. Now, when he says things like, you have heard, first three words, he's referring back to things that they have been taught in the past, okay? So he's referring to that. And then when it says, you shall love your neighbor, anytime it's in all caps like that, that means he's referring specifically to Old Testament scripture, okay? So when you see that, especially in this translation that I use, which is the New American Standard, That's how they word that. Just helps you kind of follow along with what he's trying to say. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the section that we're going to be digging into today. And I think it's fantastic wisdom. If you just read it on the surface, it's wonderful wisdom for how to read life, but It could be misleading if you don't exactly understand the context and some of the nuances that are going on. That's what I want to explain to you you here today. First of all, a little clue. Anytime you're reading a scripture, yeah, thank you. Go back to the beginning. You have heard that it was said. Now, you have heard is different than you have read, okay, or it is written. You'll notice sometimes when Jesus is preaching or anybody and they're referring back to something that has been taught. They'll either say, you have heard, or it is written, okay? That's an important distinction. It's not just semantics. It's an important distinction. If Jesus or one of the prophets or one of the apostles says, it is written, okay, you can take that to the bank. It's written. It's in, it's in scripture, okay? But when they say, you have heard, that's something that should perk our ears up just a little bit. You have heard is open to interpretation, You have heard is open to human weaknesses, human failings, and sometimes human agendas. We've all heard people teach things that, although they loosely line up the Bible, and they may even quote scripture, they're using it for a purpose that's other than it was originally intended. So when you hear, when you you read, you have heard versus you have read or it is written, that's an important thing to, to take note of. And I'll circle back around to that, so I'll explain what I mean about that. But when it talks about love, loving your neighbors, and hating your enemies, I want to read to you some scriptures that refer back to loving one another that are in the Bible. Now, these are all Old Testament, and there's dozens, there's hundreds of them, literally, that talk about love, loving one another, loving God, loving... But... I'm just going to pull out these four and just really quickly go through those. This first one is Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. Now, this is the Lord actually downloading this. He's speaking to Moses on this. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor 
as yourself, I am the Lord. Okay? Now notice in this, it doesn't differentiate between a friendly neighbor and an unfriendly neighbor. Right? That neighbor that just pulls in the garage and then shuts the door so they don't have to see you or speak to you. Or the neighbor who pulls, they're doing a U-turn and they pull up into your grass on the curb and all that. You know, that neighbor doesn't differentiate between that. He just says, love your neighbor. And here's something that's even more interesting. If you go back into the Hebrew and you translate that word neighbor, that word neighbor, as, as I've taught before, the Hebrew language is very rich and sometimes a word will mean something different. So I went in and I looked at this word neighbor to really see what the Lord was trying to relay here to Moses. In Hebrew, in this instance, interestingly enough, the word neighbor translates as either friend, opponent, or simply other person. Now hear me on this. That means that when the Lord is saying that you shall love your neighbor as yourself, the Lord specifically is choosing a word that says, I don't care if you like them or not. I don't care if they're your friend or your enemy or just some random person that you've never met. They are all your neighbors. That's interesting to note. Next scripture up here, Proverbs 25, 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. Pretty straightforward, right? Help, help. And it says specifically here, your enemy. Not even talking about a neighbor who is just at random. This is your enemy. Next one, and this is a little, little more... Uh, a little deeper in thought here, Exodus 23, verses 4 to 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. So that's going even farther, not just saying, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love you in my mind or I'm going to just put up with you in my mind. That's saying that if you see your enemy's donkey laying under its load, in other words, it's, it's collapsed or it's fallen down under its load, you could just say, ha, poor you, okay, and walk away from it. This is saying you want to take the step further and you go find your neighbor, bring him back to this place and help him relieve the load. And it doesn't just say again, neighbor, keep in mind, this says enemy's ox, and then it says hates you. The one who hates you. That takes it a little farther, doesn't it? It's more than just the random person you meet on the street. This is somebody that you know. Not only are they, have they proven themselves, they're not my friend. They're my enemy. And I know that he specifically hates me. I'm supposed to help anyway. That means we need to step outside of ourselves and what we believe we're entitled to and what we believe is right, and focus in on what the Lord wants for us. And then the last one here, Proverbs 24, 17. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Ouch. Because I can tell you, I secretly rejoice when I see my enemy, something happen to them. I'm just being transparent here. I will do that. I have that thing. You read an article or a Facebook message about, oh, this, this guy was quarterback on my football team in high school, and he was really a jerk to me, and he thought he was all that. But look at this. 
He's managing the night shift at Taco Bell now. If any of you manage the night shift at Taco Bell, I am not saying there's anything wrong with that. But isn't there just a little part of us that goes, see, he got what he deserved. Maybe it's just me. All right, so there's all those scriptures that talk about loving your neighbor, and then even further, loving your enemy. But now, so what about the second half of what Jesus says, where he says, you have heard to hate our enemies. So here's, here's just a brief listing of all the scriptures that in the Bible talk about hating our enemies. There are none. There are none. There's not one scripture or verse in the Bible that says that it's okay to hate your enemy. This is why Jesus is teaching this, and he says, you have heard, not it is written, you have heard. Who have you heard it from? Because you didn't hear it from anybody who is accurately teaching the word. You didn't hear it from anybody who was reading scripture or reciting scripture. You heard it from somebody who was teaching you that that's what the word said. So that's why we always have to be careful. Why then, why then did Jesus have to go in and teach this? You have heard versus it was said. Jesus is directly pointing in the very first line of this, he's pointing against false teaching. Okay? The, the, the rabbis, the teachers, the scribes, the Pharisees of the day had taken scripture and they had twisted it, perverted it, if you will, for their own agenda. And sometimes they did it knowingly. They had an agenda and they were purposely trying to twist it to fit that agenda. But sometimes it was something that had just happened generationally. It had happened over time and people's understanding of what was being taught here had just gotten off track. It had just gotten skewed a little bit. And then in time, it's become accepted as scripture. But Jesus is pointing directly at that and he's saying, don't take someone's word for it. And I want to reiterate that with me. Don't take my word for it. If I'm reading you a scripture, that's one thing. But if I'm telling you what my interpretation or my study or what I feel about this scripture, I want you to study that for yourself. Don't take my word for it. I will promise you that I do the best that I can to study and to hear from the Lord and to accurately relay the word, but I'm still human. And I might get it a little wrong sometimes. I'm just telling you that right now. But I want you to go back and study the word for yourself and let the Lord convict your heart. What does this mean for you? That's where I think that we should all be. But here we are in a place where the scribes and the teachers are actually taking the word that was given to Moses and they're twisting it around. And they're twisting it around to include that it's okay to hate your neighbors. And that's where this comes from. It's actually a scripture, and I'm going to read it. I don't have it on the board, but I'm going to read it. It's Deuteronomy 25, on the board. Am I a teacher? I'm writing it in chalk. On the screen. This is actually out of Deuteronomy 25, 19, and it says this. This is, again, the Lord speaking this to Moses about when they reach the promised land, okay, and what's going to happen when they get there. Therefore, it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heaven. You must not forget. 
So here's what's happening. Those who heard this have now inferred that since God teaches about loving everyone, but in the next moment, he's telling Moses, hey, when you get there, you just wipe them out to the point of erasing their memory. They, I, don't even want, I don't even want anybody to remember that they existed. They'll be gone. And I'm the Lord, and I'm going to deliver them to you. So they take this, and they say, okay, in, in one area, he's saying to love our neighbor. Okay, that's, I can do that. But then he's telling us to do this. These people are our enemies. Even the Lord has said they're our enemies, our surrounding enemies, and I'm supposed to just wipe them out with the Lord's help. That must mean it's okay to hate them. So when I see one of these people, I'm, it's okay. I'm gonna, the hate's going to well up, and I know that the Lord's going to have my back, and I'm going to go in, and we're going to slaughter them, and we're going to erase their memory. If that's not a hateful action, I don't know what is. So therefore, it's been taught Love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But the Lord never says that. The Lord never says it's okay to hate your enemies. And so when you see something like this, like people being blotted out, it's not done out of jealousy or hatred or any other kind of negative motive that the Lord would have. See, if you have an understanding of the Lord's heart and his love for his people and for all of his creation... And I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But when you have that understanding, then you see something like this and you can't interpret it as a hateful act. An act maybe we don't understand, yes. An act that doesn't make sense to us, yes. But a hateful act, no. It's never okay to hate. See, God, it proves out time and time again that our Father God is the embodiment of love. He is love incarnate. He is everything loving. And so therefore, every action, every thought, every word that comes out of his mouth is done in love. And so when we see scripture that says blot somebody out or these things happened or this kind of a judgment, we need to understand that that's done from a place of love because God is love. And I'm going to show you some scripture that points that out here a little bit later. But so let's go back through in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's get back to that. So in context here, this is, what Jesus, this is the place where Jesus is, and he's trying to correct those beliefs and those understandings of what scripture does or does not say. So 543, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. We already talked about heard versus written and what neighbor and hate and is it okay to hate your enemy. But here's... Just a little thought here. When the Jewish teachers, the scribes, the Pharisees were teaching this, they had always culturally understood neighbor to be just those people on your team. Just those people of your religion, of your tribe, of your people group, of your family. Literally, that was who your neighbors were. Okay, And so that's where they're coming at this place. When it says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. Okay. That's good. Everybody, you're all on my team. I love you all. That's easy. That's the way they interpreted that. They did not take the further understanding, meaning all the people out on the street, the guy with the megaphone or the guy with the pulpit on television telling me that since I'm a Christian, I'm ignorant and I'm simple-minded. That's my neighbor too. I'm supposed to love him too. Next verse, Matthew 5, 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
In other words, do the unexpected. It's very easy to see an enemy and hate them. It's very easy to see an enemy and get your defenses up. Whether you actively do anything or not, you're on guard, right? That's my enemy. I know it. I'm, I'm ready for whatever comes my way. This is saying do more than was expected of the average person. This means pray for them. This means go out of your way to help them. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are called to be different. We're called to respond to things differently than the average person on the street. We're called to have our hearts be in a different place than the average person on the street. More is to be expected from us because much has been given to us. Next verse, Matthew 5, 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and says reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. So when we start thinking, okay, well, they're not believers. They're not righteous, so therefore they're the others. They're the ones that it's okay for us to hate. I want to take a minute and teach you a little theology here. Okay? Some people are tuning out right now. But I want to teach you just a little bit of a theological concept that you may have heard. You may not have heard it. But I think it's an important one to understand. And this is a concept called common grace. Anybody ever heard of a concept called common grace? Okay. It's out there. It's got some different names. It's actually the the theologian John Calvin is the one who coined this phrase. He didn't invent it. I feel our Father God invented it. But John Calvin put a name to it. It's called common grace. And here's what it looks like. It's got essentially three points, three main points to common grace. Number one, God's goodwill extends to everyone and everything. God's goodwill, his disposition of goodwill is to everyone and everything. Let me show you scripture that backs that up. Psalm 145, 9. Again, I don't have it up there, but it's Psalm 145, verse 9. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all of his works. He says the word all there twice. The Lord is good to all. His mercies extend to all. All of creation. All of creation falls under this. The Lord is good to them. That's what that means. Number two, God restrains most evil in everyone, believers or not. And what I mean by restrain is essentially he will tip the scales a little bit. If there's a scale of good and evil, he'll just put his finger on one and tip that scale a little bit towards good. Doesn't have anything to do with free will. It doesn't have anything to do with the workings of evil in the world. But God will tip the scales. Number three, God influences the unredeemed for the common good. God will influence those. Whether they believe in him or not, he will influence them and use them for the common good. There's a quote when I was looking at this, and I was trying to figure out how to really encapsulate that concept and relay it to you. I actually read this quote, and it says, every breath that the wicked man takes is an example of the mercy of our holy God. Every breath that the wicked man takes. Meaning that our God is loving and holy enough to say, you are wicked, you don't believe in me, 
but I'm going to give you another day, another day to do good in this world, another day to come to know me, another day for your heart to be softened. Our Lord extends his mercy to all of his creation, the good and the bad. Actually, this is backed up again in Scripture. Romans 9, this is New Testament Scripture, Romans chapter 9, 15, 16. For he says to Moses, again, this is the Lord speaking directly to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. See, you can't outrun God in his mercy. You can't outwicked God in his mercy. You can't push him away and say, I don't want it. Because if you're still here and you're breathing, you've got it. Because it's not up to you. Now, I want to point something out because some people are hearing that and thinking, okay, he's preaching universal salvation and all this, and that is not what I'm teaching. I'm teaching that God's love and mercy extends to everyone and all of his creation. But I want to make that clear. It's not the same. Common grace does not include salvation. The Bible is very clear on that. You call in the name of Jesus, you are saved. There is no other name or way by which we can be saved. But that doesn't mean God doesn't love them and doesn't extend his mercy to them. If you ever have a doubt about how God feels in his own words about his elect. Okay, if you're a believer in Christ and you have been called to him, he has drawn you to him, then you are considered his elect. And God's love for his elect is very much different than his grace and his goodwill towards everyone and towards all of his creation. You are his elect, which means you have risen to a higher level of love. And if you have any idea what that looks like, I want to encourage you. I won't read the whole thing, but Ephesians chapter 1. If you read that verses, um, let's go like 1 through 14, it talks perfectly about God's love for his people. I'm going to read you four, uh, Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him talking about his chosen people. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. That's what the Lord thinks of you. You're his chosen. You're his beloved. And as that, we are called to a higher standard, and we are called to also love his creation just as he does, friendly and unfriendly. So again, common grace is important to understand in the context of that's how our father feels about everything that he has created. Why wouldn't we feel that way? Why shouldn't we feel that way? But it is not a salvation issue. And so if we truly love his creation, our heart should burn for everyone to know him. Our deepest desire should be for everyone to know Jesus Christ and thus have that level of grace and mercy. That's where our heart should be. So the next next, uh, scripture here, enough theology, class is over. And to go back to our scripture, Matthew 5, 46. 
If you love, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Now remember, for those of you who have heard me teach on this, or maybe you haven't, tax collectors is basically just a, a catch-all term for the most reviled people segment that were to be found at the time. And the reason they were, okay, it's not like the friendly IRS agents that we have now. Back then, a tax collector was actually a, a Hebrew Jewish person, an Israelite, who had basically gone to the dark side and joined the government, joined the, the Roman government or whoever was in charge at the time, joined them as tax collectors for their own people. <clears throat> and the reason they were reviled so much is because they were required as part of their job to collect a just tax on food and on different items, and anything you would tax now, they would tax that. But the way that they received their compensation was not with a weekly paycheck. Whatever they were able to further extort out of their own people, that's how they got paid. So in other words, if the rightful tax on, on an offering that you were bringing to the temple was, uh, was $20, I don't know what it was at the time, and they could extort 40 out of you, they would keep the difference. And so what they would do is that they would just hammer on you until they figured out what that point was that they could get it, and that's what they would walk away with. So when you saw a tax collector coming, you're like, oh, jeez. You know, you would go, you would hide, or you would do anything. Nobody wanted to sit down with them because that's how they made their money. They would just dig at you until they got their money. So they were just reviled people. So that's why it talks about tax collectors, and it's always using tax collectors as a term for those kind of people. But this is saying that if you only do what they do, how are you any better? If you only repay good for good, or evil for evil, how is that any different than what everybody else does? We're called to repay evil with good. We're called to take that slap in the face and smile and not retaliate. Gabe taught about eye for an eye last week and how many times when something evil happens to us do we immediately start plotting how we're going to get revenge or, or fantasizing about how something's going to happen to them. They're going to step off the curb and break their leg. or So these thoughts start coming into our mind. But that's not where we should be. That's not where Jesus wants us to be. And that's why he's teaching this. If these people who are considered evil and the worst and nobody wants to be with them, if they do these things, then how are you any different? Keep in mind, we're called to be different. We were made from birth to be different. That's what he's pointing out to us. Matthew 5, 47 then. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Now back then, when he's talking about greeting, back then they had a common greeting, which was just peace be with you. So when you'd, see a, when you'd see a brother, somebody of your own, of your own tribe or, or village, you would say, peace be with you. Kind of similar to now when you're walking up to somebody and you go, hey, how are you doing? And you've moved on. You're not even waiting for an answer, right? We just do it out of rote. How are you doing? How was your day? But we don't want to know the answer in most cases. It's just a greeting that we throw out and it's kind of even ceased to lose meaning. Back then, it was the same thing when they, when they said, peace be with you. It was just something they threw out. It had become just one of those rote things. Didn't have a meaning to it. So that's what he's saying. 
if you only do that. And by Gentiles, again, he's saying non-Jews for the most part, but also those who are not bound by covenant to the teachings of our Lord. So that's the group that they're talking about. Sometimes they call them publicans. You'll see it used that way. But essentially what he's saying is don't just love your friends, your family, people on your team, people of your party, people of your race, people of your religion, whatever it is. Don't just love those people who agree with you. And let me show you how that plays out. Have you ever had a sports star or a politician or a movie star, somebody that in general you look up to and you see them as somebody that, yeah, I, I think I align with what they say and how they say it and most of what they believe and who they are. I, I pretty much line up with that. I could say I'm team them, okay? And then you hear them say something or do something that's entirely out of character for them. That's so far off, you're like, I don't, that doesn't sound like them. What's our first thought? Oh, there they go, spouting that junk again. Or do we say, maybe I've got it wrong, because I have grace for them, because they've proven themselves in the past to line up with me, so... Maybe I'm not interpreting what they said right, or I heard wrong. That's what grace looks like. I don't believe it. I don't agree with it. What I think I heard you say, and I'm, I really don't like that you said it, but my heart is disposed to take a moment and have some grace and try and make sure that I'm understanding what you're trying to say or who you are or what you're going through. Rather than to just have the quick reaction, like, oh, there they are again. Think of your, your least favorite person, politician, sports star, whatever it is. They could come up and say, have a nice day, and you're going to go, what does that mean? Right? That's an example of not having grace. But we are called to have grace for those people who are not on our team. To go above and beyond what is expected. Because just having grace for one another as we sit here, that's easy. Anybody should be able to do that. It's when you have that opportunity to judge or to not have grace. And we do anyway, that's when God can really do work. That's when God can take that situation. He can work in our hearts and he can work in theirs. That's what it's talking about. So I want to I urge you to, when you see something like that, okay? And I, I'll watch the news. I'll watch Fox News. Used to. Don't anymore because I found out it wasn't good for me because I struggled with it. I would see people on there, politicians in general. They would say something, and I would go, you are so stupid. Why is this idiot even taking up space on the TV? And who are the idiots that elected that idiot to be in a position of power? I'm throwing out idiot and jerk like it's candy. Here, have some. I'm spreading it around liberally to anyone that I don't agree with. That's not right. And the Lord convicted my heart. You're throwing out an awful lot of hate to people that you have no idea what their motivation is. You have no idea their background. 
But most importantly, you do know that they're God's creation, and you're doing it anyway. That convicted my heart. So I don't, I don't say don't, because I don't want to lie to you. I try not to throw out those kinds of words anymore. I try to say things like, I'm going to pray for them. I think they're misled. I think they're uninformed. I'm going to pray for them, that they would see things the way the Lord wants them to see them. That's what I try and do, and I just want to urge you to respond that way. Change the words idiot or jerk to maybe uninformed or deceived. Okay, because that should be our heart. If there's deception going on, our heart should be that the Lord would speak to them. Next section here, we're at the last section of this, Matthew 5, 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I taught that two weeks ago, and it's still hard. That didn't get any easier for me. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But I think we can be working towards that. I think we can be growing in that perfection, that image, and that righteousness of Jesus in us through a couple things that are intentional. Number one, study the word. Truly read and study the word of God so that when people say to you, hey, Bible says, love your neighbor and hate your enemies, we don't just go, well, it does say that. I remember reading it. But that we can say, nah, he's saying, love your neighbors. And that part about hating your enemies is nowhere to be found. Only through study of the word can we actually have that sort of interaction with people that will help draw them closer to Jesus rather than turn them away. So much of the Bible is twisted to where people read it and they go, yeah, it's hateful. It's a bunch of rules. It's about hating everyone who's not of your kind. The Bible's not like that. The word of God is never like that. But when we're ignorant of what the Bible truly says and what the Lord truly teaches in the word, then we don't have a response to that. And we just let it go. It's our duty and it should be our desire to grow in this perfection. To grow towards that intentionally every day. But I got a surprise for you. We're never going to make it. We're never going to make it to perfection. And so when you read something like that that says, that's an impossibly high bar. How is that ever going to happen? What that does is it points us back to Jesus. It points us back to the fact that we'll never do it on our own. And so we need a Savior. And it's only through him and through his righteousness this is what it says in Matthew 5.20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's Jesus saying that. Unless your righteousness is more than those people who devoted their entire life to being righteous, you're not going to enter heaven. Again, he's saying you can't do it on your own. You won't do it on your own. We need Jesus. So as I wrap this up, I want to kind of bring it to, a, to something that makes sense here. Let me list a couple things that loving people accomplishes. 
whether they're our enemies or our neighbors or not, loving all people and loving all of creation. Let me point out a couple things that that creates. Number one, it glorifies God. It glorifies God when we love everyone and everything without condition, and it reflects his righteousness. It also brings peace. When we choose as our default position to love, it brings peace. Now, I'm not saying it's going to put an end to all war and conflict anywhere in the world, but if our default position was to try to love and understand one another, how much less strife, anger, hardship would we have? It brings peace. But the final two things I think are the most important things. Number one, when we choose to love people, it brings people to Jesus. If we're, if we're Christians and we profess to be Christians and people know that you are, especially if you say you are, you drive around with the sticker on the back of your car, our actions can be used by the Lord to draw people to him. And then the last thing, the reason that I want to love people first as my default, it's because it's what Jesus wants you to do. It's what our Lord and Savior wants us to do. That's why I want that to be my default. Now, let me give you the flip side, what hating people accomplishes. Hating people glorifies the flesh, and it satisfies the self. How many times have I, I'll just point at me, I'm not making eye contact with any of you, but you feel that righteous hatred and it kind of satisfies something inside you. Like, yeah, I'm right and they're wrong and I can, I can just get all puffed up and feel self-righteous in that. It feels kind of good sometimes until the Lord convicts you that that's not where he wants your heart. But it satisfies the self. It also sows strife and division. But the most important thing, the most important reason to not hate people is because it's what Satan wants you to do. Loving people is what Jesus wants you to do. Hating people is what Satan wants you to do. It's our choice. We get to choose. Can we love and hate at the same time? You've heard the saying, love the sinner, or, or love the sinner, hate the sin? We've heard that, right? Is that possible? Can we do that? I think we can, but we have to be careful about how we do it. Love the children of God, love all of God's creation, but hate the devil's influence in them. Our hate and our anger, such as it is, should be directed where it belongs. Not on the individual, but on Satan and his influence in them. That's a fine line to walk. And I want to urge you, if you're going to do that, love the sinner, hate the sin, we need to be seeking the Holy Spirit and his guidance through those interactions. Because again, if we just rise up in our flesh and say, okay, I, I love you as a person, but those things that you're doing, man, they're wrong, and we start pointing fingers and we start judging, now we're off track. Only the Lord can give us guidance through those situations, and that's where our heart should be. And I think it's all summed up, and this is my favorite, this is becoming easily far and away my favorite 
scripture in the entire Bible is this. It's on screen. Matthew 22, 36 to 40. Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus into blaspheming or breaking the law. And they say, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said, he is Jesus, replies back to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. In other words, not just love your neighbor, love everyone. Love everyone. And then to put a finer point on it is this. If you love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength, or all your mind, this translation says, you cannot hate his people. If you love the Lord your God, you cannot hate his people. If you do, you're willfully rejecting what Jesus teaches here. So I want to, before I go into conclusion here, the worship team can actually start coming up. Gabe had a great interaction yesterday with somebody where she had the opportunity to actually put this into play. And I want her to share with you, if you're willing, I should have asked. (laughs) Note to self, ask before putting your wife on stage. I want her to share with you how this interaction went down. Okay, I'll keep this brief. And it's, I just want to point out, I hadn't even heard his message yet when that, this happened yesterday morning, um, but it fits perfectly. So um, I have type 1 diabetes, and I'm on very many Facebook groups of other people that have type 1 diabetes. And I use it as just a way to, to keep myself informed and, and just to have community in that way as well. But something that I have experienced is that... Um, these groups are not very friendly to uh, Christians. They're just not in general, at least the ones that I have encountered. There are some that are specifically Christians with type 1 diabetes. But other than that, there's some issues there. And I think specifically they have issues with the thought of, of a God who would allow this or that people who might believe that healing is possible. So I'm on Facebook, and I see this interaction that has started where somebody has posted something kind of inflammatory about a church who's talking about, essentially, that if you're praying correctly, you would be healed of of type 1 diabetes, and this makes people very, very angry and starts a whole barrage of things. And so the my first instinct was just to scroll past that and not get in the middle of it, but I felt like I was like, no, you, sh- you should get in the middle of this one. And so I, I just posted on there, hey, I hope you guys know this is the exception and not the rule. God would never condemn you like that. It is his choice, you know, um, our interactions and, and healing and, and that type of thing. And God, um, it's not up to a person to tell you that your relationship isn't right with God. That's not how it works. And so, of course, it started another thing saying, how is what you are saying any different Right? How can you justify what you are saying, meaning me? How is it any different than, uh, or make any sense to say that a serpent deceived a girl to eat an apple and there was a virgin birth and it was like, Phew. So I came back and I said, you know, I understand that it doesn't make sense. And when I started, 
I couldn't reconcile all those things in my mind either. I can only tell you the experience that I have had with Jesus is very real to me, and I can't imagine my life without him. And I didn't mean to offend you in that way. I just was sad that this this video was posted and was causing such turmoil. So he responds with another thing, but the tone was a little different and said, you know, if we want to continue this in private message, we can do that. I was like, all right. And so we started a private message. And then all of a sudden, he starts asking me, did you know your purpose when you met Jesus? And he said, you know, we're really not that different. I just don't ever have anybody I can ask questions of. And before you know it, we are in this gigantic, lengthy conversation about how my relationship and Bob's relationship evolved into us becoming pastors. And at the end of that, um, I invited him, you know, when you have questions or want somebody to talk it over with, message me. I will totally do that. He doesn't even live in this state, but I'm like, do that. I want you to know you, you can talk to me and I'm not going to judge you at all. And so we, we ended that conversation and he goes back onto the original thread and posts and said, for anybody that was following this thread, I want you to know it's possible to disagree, but have a civil conversation. And I've had this with Gabrielle and now I feel like I have a new friend. And I'm like, God, that is so cool. And that was like on Facebook before I'd even gotten out of my pajamas. So anyway, just be encouraged that God can use even the littlest things to make a gigantic difference if we can just come at it without immediately getting whipped up and being angry. Amen. Thanks. As it would have been so easy to see that thread going that direction and just say, ah, I'm just going to unfollow this thread or I'm going to click off and do something else or watch a puppy video to cleanse my, <laughs> cleanse my palate. It would have been very easy to do that. But she heard the Holy Spirit telling her to love this person who's either hurt or deceived or uninformed. And through her obedience and her faithfulness and taking that time to just not hate or not ignore somebody who's feeling that way, now the Lord's got something he can work with. Now, we don't know. I'd love to say, you know, maybe this will play out where he'll email back and say, hey, I gave my life to Christ because of, you know, my softened heart. We don't know that, and it really doesn't matter because it's more about us. If we're not a part of the problem, We're not a part of making things worse. God can do and will do wonders because he loves all of his creation. Amen? So I want to pray today that our default position is not one of judgment or hate, but is one of love. And as I do that, I want you to examine your heart if there's any place where you've got hate hiding out in there. This isn't a message of condemnation. This is a message of rejoicing that if you give that to God, he will take it. He will take it because he knows what to do with it. He knows where it belongs. And then you can walk out of this with that love in your heart, which is where I think we're all called to be. So a couple ways we can do this. 
I'm going to pray over you. I want you just to receive that prayer. And if the Lord speaks something to you specifically about a place uh, of, of hate or judgment or anger, take those and give them back to him. Now, you can either just in your heart, just give it back to him, or we have the crosses. And the crosses at the tables by the crosses have little note cards. And you can write that person or that thing or whatever it is on the note card and literally pin it to the cross and leave it there and walk away from it. You can do that. And then as soon as you do that, or maybe you're here and you, I, you don't have anything, and I just want to celebrate Jesus, what he's done, then we invite you to take communion. It doesn't matter if this is your home church or you're part of this body or anything. If you know Jesus and you want to celebrate what he's done for you, then celebrate communion with us. Gabe and I will be up front. We've got wine and, and uh, bread and gluten-free crackers up there. We can serve you. At the crosses, there's juice and bread and crackers, and you can serve yourself there if you would rather. But let's just let the Lord minister to us for a minute, and then when you're ready, you can get up and begin to move around, and then after a song, then Pastor Jonathan will dismiss you. So just join me in this prayer. Heavenly Father, we just, we just open our hearts to you, Lord, and we just ask that you pinpoint for us, shine a light on those areas of darkness in our heart, those things that don't belong those things that you know are keeping us from the fullest of what you have called us to be. God, show us those things, and then, Lord, we offer them back to you. We don't want to hang on to them because they're killing us. Lord, we give it back to you, and we just ask that you would replace that with your grace and your mercy and your righteousness, and that would be, we would be a reflection of that everywhere that we go. Father, we repent of the thought that we can hate other people. Lord, we want your love. And Father, we celebrate everything that your son Jesus has done for us. And it's through his work on the cross that we can be righteous and that we can offer the kind of grace that's not possible in our flesh. So Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your grace and mercy on all your creation, but especially on us. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, folks.
at you, who beat you, who nailed you to the cross. And you said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And it was our sin that put you there. 
and you took the sins of the whole world upon your shoulders. You paid for them and you gave us your love. And so God, we just wanna be filled with that love and overflow. So I bless your people this week to spread that to their communities, to their neighbors, their friends, their workplaces. And God, as we go, let us shine your light with your life and with your encouragement. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna continue to worship and just hang out, so feel free to enjoy that atmosphere here. But please connect with people in the foyer as you go, and and let's just uh, be the church and love on each other.